Father, we're thankful for this morning and for Your Word. And God, as we reach into this familiar text, we pray that You would protect our hearts from glossing over and assuming we know what it says. That in one sense it's straightforward and simple. On the other hand, it's difficult to live out. So would Your Spirit give us the strength to hear your word and to apply it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Ruth is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a literary masterpiece because the story that it tells is about the redemption of a widow, Naomi. You're familiar with the story, Ruth, that, that Elimelech and Naomi move to Moab in the, as a famine comes into Bethlehem. And as they move to Moab, their sons marry wives and Elimelech dies. The two sons die and we have three widows that are destitute. It's a hopeless situation. And, and the book unfolds with the redemption of this widow, Naomi. And in the opening chapter, when, when word has come back that, that, their, that bread has returned to Bethlehem, that the Lord has lifted the famine, Naomi looks to go back. And her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, set out with her to go back. And Orpah... Naomi recognizing the difficulty of the situation. It's not very pragmatic for these two Moabite women to go back with them. And so Naomi says, you should stay here. There's no future for you in Israel as Moabites. There's no hope for you. Stay here, find a husband, set your life up for the future. And of course, Orpah, who's a foil, an opposite to Ruth, Orpah behaves like every man. She behaves like anyone normal would behave. And she says, okay, I'll go back. But Ruth says, no, something is different. Ruth has a different relationship to Naomi. She has a different relationship to Naomi's God. And this is where we get her proclamation in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth is making an illogical move. From a human perspective, it's almost an irrational decision to follow Naomi. Now, now we are challenged because we know the end of the story and we know everything worked out great for Ruth. But if you were standing there watching this conversation on the road, you would say, what a foolish girl. She's throwing away her future. But she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. As we're going to see in our text today, God often asks us to defy human logic and human reason. That our instinct for self-preservation is often an obstacle 
to the gospel. And Jesus lets us know that the ultimate, the ultimate purpose is to follow him. And so you and I, we have a choice to make. Are we going to have lives marked by temporary gain? Are we going to pledge our allegiance to this world and what we can make of it? Or are we going to live as a follower of Christ? So in our text today, we're going to look at Jesus is going to explain the cost of being a disciple. But then he's going to follow up with motivation. He's going to help us understand why it is we would want to be a disciple, the motivation. So it's the cost of discipleship and the motivation for discipleship. Now, you will remember over the last few weeks after rebuking Peter for his misstep and and the human-centered understanding of Christ that, that Jesus moves from this negative rebuke of Peter to a positive expectation of what it takes to be a disciple. Jesus will begin with a statement. He's going to say, if you want to be my disciple, this is the way you do it. And then he gives us three reasons or three motivations for how we do that. So let's look at the text. In verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You notice that then at the beginning, we've followed a series of events in Caesarea Philippi. Peter makes his great confession. You are Christ. And then Jesus talks about the building of the church that will prevail. But then things take a turn. And, and Matthew lets us know from that time forward, Jesus began to speak about the reality of this trip to Jerusalem and what's lying at the other end and how he's going to suffer how he's going to be killed, and how he's going to be raised from the dead. Of course, Peter was expecting a far different path for the Messiah, and one that rejects Christ's path of suffering. And you remember last week, Peter objects, and Jesus strongly rebukes him. And he says, Peter, you're a hindrance or a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that text, that, that contrast, the things of God, the things of man, and what is what brings us to our text today. Our text today begins then. So Jesus isn't just going to rebuke Peter and walk away. He's going to give an explanation. He's going to give Peter instruction for what it means to be a disciple. For what it means to set his mind on the things of God. He says, if anyone would come after me, Basically, if you want to be my disciple, it's, it's like the conditions of employment. If you want to follow me. In the first century, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, there was often a cost. You would pay a fee and he would teach you. Not that different from maybe the way we do seminary today. But not with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus doesn't charge the disciples a fee, but he expects a willingness for them to pay a cost. He isn't calling for a casual commitment. He lets them know, if you want to follow me, there's a cost. Let him deny himself. 
You know, it's interesting. The, the Greek has a tense that's the third person imperative. We can't, we can't give a command in the third person. He can't say, uh, he deny himself. You would never hear that as a command. So what we have to do in English is we have to put that in a way uh, like the Net Bible does. The Net Bible says he must deny himself. And, and the point, the whole point I would say that is just to say, Jesus isn't offering a suggestion. That when you read the word might, sometimes you, you would see it a little soft. Let him deny himself. Okay, if you want to follow me, you might. Jesus is giving a command. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. It's not an option. We can think of Christianity sometimes, I think, as, as hey, there's an entry ticket that gets me salvation, but then I have this option of whether I want to move on and be a disciple or not. And Jesus says, that person doesn't exist. That's, that's a hypothetical state that doesn't exist. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. The disciple commits to refusing his self-centered desires. He's willing to no longer simply live for his own purposes. And we need to be careful. This isn't some silly re New Year's resolution. It's not a shallow self-denial like giving up M&Ms for Lent. That this is, and it's not calling you to a life of asceticism, that anything that brings you joy or pleasure must be wrong, so therefore I'm just going to rid myself of all that. He's not talking about self-abuse. He's not saying you have to have low self-esteem. What he's saying is you have to set aside your self-centered arrogance. You have to set aside the desire to be the driver of your own life. You have to set aside your pride. That his priorities become your priorities. It's not a negotiation. It's not an averaging out. That, that we see in the next passage, he's actually calling us to something far more. He says he must deny himself and take up his cross. You and I look back with a full understanding of this text. But for the disciples, this image would have been visceral. The, the cross and crucifixion is a capital punishment. It's an instrument of torture and death. And by the way, Jesus hasn't told them yet that, that he's going to die on a cross. And I think how much more poignant, how much more searing must this image have been after the crucifixion for the disciples to look back. That it's like it, it took on a new meaning, a new understanding. But in this context here, the, the cross is an object of execution that those are convicted or they carry the crossbar through, through crowds that would taunt and would mock because you did something worthy of death. Sometimes, if the crowd gets out of control, the crowd themselves might kill you. And Jesus says, that's what I'm calling you to. You're marching to your death for my sake. To ask the disciples to carry their cross, he's making it clear not only that he's going to suffer like he just told them, but that they must be willing to suffer and ultimately die if it's asked of them for his sake. Anyone who follows Jesus has to be willing to do the same. In our culture, we're pretty comfortable. We don't often get asked to even make little sacrifices. But Jesus says, look at your heart. Are you willing to take up your cross? 
Your life is forfeited the moment you begin to follow Him. Forfeited from your own perspective. That we essentially give up our right to live life the way we want to. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Be my disciple. Be a following of me. It's, it's, it's life focused on the Master that the desire is to please Him. My life was deeply impacted with Campus Crusade for Christ. And one of the stories I appreciated hearing early on was the story of Bill and Vonette Bright. That Bill was a young, successful businessman who came to Christ. And, and Vonette will tell the story about this time she walked into the house and Bill was sitting there and he said, I think it's time for us to draw up a contract with God. And she said, okay. She said, he said, if we're going to live the rest of our lives, then we need to know what we're committing to for God. And he says, you go in the bedroom, I'll stay here in the dining room. And she said she went to the bedroom for a couple hours. She sat, she got on her knees, she prayed and said, what is it that I want out of life? And she started a list. And she said, you know, it, it would be nice to... to, to what would it be reasonable to ask God for? And she said, maybe two cars. So she put down a couple of cars that would get us around. She said, uh, I prayed that maybe God would give us two to three kids would be ideal. She said, I wanted a house that would be modest enough to entertain the homeless off of Skid Row, that they would feel comfortable coming in our home as we, we always wanted our house to be open to those who are in desperate need but also that it was lovely enough to entertain the President of the United States if he came to visit us. And that she wanted to honor him and, glor and to glorify God with her lives. And she said she brought that list into the, to the dining room where Bill was. And she sat down and, and he said, you share your list first. And she shared his list and he said, that's a charming list, that's great. And then that he went to his list and, and he said that I want to be a slave to Jesus. That everything in our life belongs to Him. That I will never seek fame or fortune on my own. That, that we will trust God to provide. That He would never seek wealth or reputation or recognition. That He would be filled with the Spirit and available to do God's will. She said she felt like, at the end, as they went through life, she said, Bill, you need to be thankful that every material thing we have is because of my list. <laughs> but that ultimately she was moved by his list. And, 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 and in an act he described as, as what he called later was basically signing over the title deed to their lives. They prayed. Bill says, Lord, we prayed. We want to surrender all of our own ambitions worldly, materialistic plans and desires to You. By Your enabling grace and power, we're turning our backs on the things that have encumbered us in order that we might serve You, the living God, more effectively and fruitfully. You've commanded us to seek first the kingdom of God and to lay up treasures in heaven. Now we want to seek You and Your way above everything else. We want our treasures to be used for Your glory. We want to serve You and do whatever You want us to do and go wherever, wherever You want us to go, whatever the cost. 
And then soon after, we know the story. God would give him a vision almost immediately of of a ministry that would become Campus Crusade for Christ. A ministry that deeply impacted my life. It's deeply impacted many of your lives and the lives of millions of people around the world as his life was committed to evangelism and discipleship. Follow Jesus. In one of the early versions of the transferable concepts, which were these discipleship tools that Campus Crusade would use to train the basics of discipleship, with no regret, Bill says, today we own very little of the world's goods, mostly personal items. We don't own our home, which we rent, nor do we own a car. Though though transportation is provided for our ministry, we literally live as as God supplies our needs from day to day. But oh, what adventure to live for Christ. To serve the King of kings and Lord of lords without the hindrances and encumbrances of possessions which possess us and rob us of our power with God and with others. What a life and what an image of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. There's a a great temptation for us. I remember early in my Christian life that, that I wanted the fire insurance. I wanted Jesus to save me from hell. But I didn't want Him to take over my life. I was afraid I might find myself in a suit preaching. I was truly scared of what God would do. We sort of hedge our bets. We want to give God enough to feel comfortable to seek His blessing, but not enough to be weird. Not enough that God might ask something radical of us. But here's the thing, guys. He asks for everything. He wants it all. Everything. Every part of your life is to be subject to Him. But He doesn't just command this. He gives us three reasons. He explains why He wants these things. Look at the next verse. The next three sentences start with four. That lets us know He's given us a reason. This is a why or a because. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is all obviously with the assumption that you and I believe in life after death. Because what Jesus is going to say makes no sense for our temporal life. Why would we not build as much as we can? Well, the reality is this isn't all there is. That we look forward to a future. And so this image that Jesus gives about losing your life is future looking. That that if you want to save your life, you're actually going to forfeit. The thing that you're actually trying to preserve, in the fact you're trying to preserve it, it actually destroys. You're trying to build your life, your soul, your heart on temporary things. But in doing that, you're actually destroying your soul. That this isn't simply forfeiting though, it's forfeiting for His sake. We're not living for ourselves, but for His sake. That we lose our lives for His sake and we find it. There's a great example of this back in the book of Ruth as we come to the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. Um, You remember the story. Ruth comes back with Naomi. 
They have no means to provide for themselves other than gleaning. So, so Ruth goes out and she follows the harvesters. She picks up the loose wheat that's on the ground. And her reputation builds. And, and in the second chapter it says, and it just so happened that she went into the field of a man named Boaz who happened to be a relative. And as she serves and her faithfulness, her reputation's getting around, she's a noble woman. And by the way, the text tells us that Boaz was a, was a noble man, that he was a man of honor. And so Ruth gleans, and when she comes home, she tells Naomi about it. Naomi says, ah, oh, this man is our Redeemer. And so the third chapter is this, this setting where Ruth kind of presents herself to Boaz in a way that he might take up that right of redemption, that he might buy Naomi's portion of this land that Naomi and Ruth would be cared for. And Boaz accepts, but, in the, but he says there's a nearer kinsman. There's a man who has sort of a right of first refusal over the redemption of Naomi, and we have to go to him first. And Naomi's excited because this means they're going to be cared for. Again, it's hard to, it's hard to fully grasp the destitution, the, the difficulty of the circumstance for widows in the ancient Near East. But Naomi's excited because we have a kinsman that's going to take care of us. And as we're reading the story, when you're, when you're reading it, there's almost this lump in your throat when, when Boaz says, hey, there's somebody closer. Because you've grown to love Boaz... And you want to see Boaz and Ruth get together, but hey, there's this other guy that we've got to go to first to clear accounts. And so we come to chapter 4 to this confrontation or this, this interaction. It says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, the, the nearer kinsman, came to Boaz and, and Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside and he sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit here and he sat down. They bring the elders in so it's all above board, that it's all official. We know that Boaz is related to this guy. So certainly Boaz would have known his name. But, but when he gets his attention, look, he says, turn aside friend. And that, that word friend, it's polonialmoni, it literally means such and such. It's, it's like the narrator wants us to call him Mr. So-and-so. So hey, come here Mr. So-and-so, you're the closer redeemer, you have a chance to redeem Naomi and Ruth, come over here. And so Boaz says to the guy, would you like to purchase this land? to redeem Naomi, and of course the guy, it's a good land deal. He says, of course, I would love to do that. But then Boaz says in verse 5, he says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And so suddenly, what was a great land deal that expanded this guy's inheritance? is now going to shrink it because there's a widow. And not only is there a widow, but you'll be required to perpetuate the name of the widow's husband. And so it goes from a net positive to a net negative. Now, you and I sitting here reading this story would say, what does it matter? You're taking care of this widow. What greater need that could there be? 
But look how the man responds. He says, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Did you get it? The man who's consumed with his name, the man who's consumed with his inheritance, he's focused on the things of the earth, and as a result, what's his name? Mr. So-and-so. We don't even know his name. He lost it. We know Boaz's name. Boaz will go on with Ruth to preserve the Davidic line, the Messianic line. Ruth and Boaz are going to be the great-grandparents of King David. So we have, in the first chapter, Ruth laying down her life, giving up what's reasonable and what's rational. Boaz seemingly gives away the advantages that he has built in his life, but in the end... They both lay down their lives. They both lay down their insistence on earthly things. And in the end, they gain their lives and God uses them mightily. Again, it's, it's sometimes hard to read these stories when we know the end. But if you realize what these people were giving up, and, and you get these stark contrasts with Orpah, who turns back to Moab, and with Mr. So-and-so who sought to save his name, that all of a sudden you start to think whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus goes on and he says, what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, another for, because... The second reason is, is spoken as a proverb. It's a question that we gain the whole world. This is the big dream. All you ever wanted, if all you ever wanted came true, that's gaining the whole world. So if you think back to all those games you played in your head of if I won the lottery, if I had all the time in the world, if I could retire early, these are the things I would accomplish. If I could dream the biggest dream that my heart would ever dream, what would I want? That's what it means to gain the whole world. But what if doing that came with a price, came with a cost, and that cost is forfeiting your soul? It's similar to the, the, the Faustian bargain, the legend of Faust, who sold his soul to the devil to gain worldly pleasures to gain all the knowledge at the expense of his soul. He sold his soul to the devil for temporary gain. It's senseless. It's meaningless. And so what is our cost? Faith in Christ. Allegiance. Wholeheartedly following Him. We take, we deny we take up and we follow. And here's the thing, guys. We can trust Him. 
Like he's not calling you to radically give things up in a, in a, in a way that's going to leave you. It may leave you destitute here on the earth. But ultimately, in all eternity, this is going to be absolute gain. It just comes down to do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Do you really believe that life is a vapor? Do you really believe that we're only here temporarily and that ultimately we trust him because there's life eternal out there? Deny, take up, and follow. And so I I think each of us have to take inventory of our life. Am I willing, truly willing, to give up everything to follow him? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. You know, we're in the season of Advent. Advent meaning arrival. And in this season, many of us light candles. We read devotionals. Maybe we sing hymns as a family in our homes as a preparation for the coming Christmas holiday. That. But you know, the Advent season is both a looking back at at the first Advent, at Christ's first coming that we've been studying throughout the book of Matthew. And in this first coming, he, He came as a servant. But while we look back at His first coming, we also look forward to His second coming. We anticipate His arrival. And we have something to look forward to, His glory it's coming. Grant Osborne said, eschatology is the mother of ethics. What you believe about the future affects how you live today. If you believe that this is all there is, if you believe that you've got to grab life for all the gusto, if you believe that you only live once, if you believe that everything about this life is all there is, then you're going to live treasuring up things here nearby. But if you truly believe that His glory is coming, that there's a future, then you say, what is all this? Why would I not trade in the temporary? What we believe about the future drives how we live today. And we're not going to fully unpack this today. But this term, Son of Man, it's a reference back to the Messianic prophecy. Jesus is making a divine claim here. Back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus Christ is God. He has all power and authority in the cosmos. How could we not submit to Him? We're not following a rabbi. We're not following a mere man. We're following the the King Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No matter how bad things get in this world, no matter how much He asks us to suffer, how much we give up, we know by faith that He will make all things right. That He's returning to judge. And and He will judge. The the Word says according to what He has done. Literally, it's the idea of, of His practice according to his practice. And and so this is the idea of an individual life viewed in its entirety that we're all going to be judged on the basis of our lives. Did you commit your life to Christ? Or were you concerned with the things of the world? That he will reward us and lift us up based on our faithfulness. And he will judge those who reject him Jesus is God. Jesus is our ultimate authority. And He will set all things right. Not immediately. Probably not today. Maybe not today. We don't know when. This isn't isn't the prosperity gospel where you follow Him and everything gets easy. That there's an ultimate time that He will deal with wicked and evil. There's an ultimate time that He will reward you for your faithfulness. And that's part of the challenge. We have to walk by faith. We have to trust it. Even when we don't feel like it. Because guys, a lot of times I look at what's in front of me and I'm focused on what's in front of me. And I have to say, stop it. Look up. Look out. Look to the future. He concludes verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Truly, or amen. That that Jesus is going to stress the importance here of what He's about to say. And it's continuing this thought of the future. Now there are several views on what Jesus is talking about when He says to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Some would say... It's the transfiguration. That's the most obvious answer because we're about, you know, John's next text in Matthew will be the transfiguration. So it makes sense that Jesus goes from some will see the Son of Man coming in His glory immediately into the transfiguration. Others will say it's the resurrection. Others will say it's the fall of Jerusalem. Maybe it's the missionary expansion of the church as the gospel goes out to the world. In all likelihood, it's, it's likely a combination of these views. Because if it were just the transfiguration, it seems odd that he would say, some of you standing here today will still be alive basically a few days from now when the transfiguration happens. Certainly that's a part of what we're talking about. But, but the transfiguration isn't the full expression of Jesus coming into his kingdom. The transfiguration is going to be a snapshot, a glimpse of the second coming, but it it marks the beginning of a series of events, that series of events I just read through, that that lead fully to the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. That in, In some ways, the transfiguration is an inauguration, an expansion. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. I am coming. So here we are. Jesus has taken His disciples from Caesarea Philippi and Peter's great proclamation. He's told them about His impending death. 
And now he's telling them, this is the true cost of following me. You and I have been on this journey with them for the last several weeks. You've seen these texts. You've responded to the gospel. Last week, John gave a very clear presentation of the gospel message. Jesus, in his first advent, came as an infant. He lived a perfect life. He died as the suffering servant for anyone who would put their faith in him. Have you put your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross to save you from your sin? Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? And in this week's text, Jesus has explained the cost of being his disciple, of following him. But he's also shown us the benefit of following him. As we look forward to his second coming, to his second advent, when he will come in judgment and he will make all things right. And so that's my question for you. Are you a Christ follower? Are you a disciple? Are you all in? Or do you hold back? Is there a chamber in your heart that you're unwilling to give God? Is there a part of you that you're holding back that, man, I'm afraid if I just hand this over to God, He's going to call me to do something irrational or difficult or challenging? Are you truly following Him? Are you fixated on your health? Not in a way that is a healthy steward to, to maximize your opportunity to minister, but in an obsessive desire to preserve your health for your own sake. Are you fixated on your finances? Will I have enough? Do I have enough? How can I make more? Are you driven by a worldly ambition to achieve great things for your name? Is your life marked with the pursuit of pleasure? To feel as good as you possibly can, no matter the lines you cross? Are you consumed with comfort, with the avoidance of pain? Are you fixated on your future, your position, your power, your influence? Are you ambitious for the things of earth or are you ambitious for the things of God? Do your priorities reflect His priorities? You say you follow Him, but do you follow Him? Or do you basically direct your own life and ask Him to put a stamp on it because you wear the Christian label? Is there anything Jesus could ask you to do that you would say no? This is my line. You can have all these other things, but don't cross this line. Are you His disciple? Is your life marked with the attitude of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, and of following Him. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a big ask, but only because we're limited in our understanding. You are the God of the universe and what you ask of us is reasonable because you know what's best. 
you search our hearts and make us aware of the areas that we hold back? Make us aware of, of the areas that we try to control. Make us aware of the areas that we're unable to or unwilling to deny ourselves. And that, Lord, as a body, would we be marked by a commitment to follow you. Not merely to be part of a Christian culture, not merely to be part of the club, not merely to be saved from hell, but that we would follow you because you are worthy. You are our God. And I pray that in our hearts it would be as simple as that. We pray in your son's name. Amen.